We're going to read from the Old Testament, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, the first 11 verses. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Amen. It was 50 years ago that I was a uh, seminary student, and I was receiving instructions on how to prepare a sermon, almost all of which I have forgotten, but I remember one. That instruction was the last thing you do is prepare your introduction. Everything else is done, then you do the introduction. I don't think I've ever taken those instructions as literally in 50 years as I have tonight. Because at 6 o'clock, I'm sitting here trying to figure out how I'm going to get into this message. How do you take all the joys of the Advent season and mix them in with what happened on Friday. I did go to church this morning, about 100 yards from here, 
and the senior pastor got up to start the service, and he took a long time to try to explain that very thing, how to put Friday and Advent together. Some 30 minutes later, the second pastor got up to give his sermon, and he began by sharing his own reflections from what happened on Friday. And I've been sitting here thinking that what has happened to me today is that I've gone back and forth between the two. I'm not sure which I've thought more about. Then I looked at the sermon title and said, How to Obtain Comfort. That title was turned in here a couple of weeks ago. And I began to think about the context of Isaiah 40. Because if we had started reading at 36, and had read 36 and 37 and 38 and 39, we would have gotten information about Israel, the northern half, and Judah, the southern half, and about the threats from Assyria, and the threats from Babylon, and the threats from Egypt, and, and all the terrible things that were happening to God's people, and the word of Israel being captured, destroyed, in effect, and the anticipation that the same thing would happen to Judah. And by the time we would finish reading those four chapters, or would have experienced those four chapters, Isaiah 40 would be very, very welcome. We're ready to receive some comfort. And the gospel tonight, according to Isaiah, tells us how to obtain comfort. And boy, do we need it at this particular time. Well, Isaiah says it in Old Testament language. We're more used to New Testament language, but let's let, our, let's let Isaiah express it to us. As I thought about the passage, there seemed to me to be three things that we can say out of this passage. And they're pretty clear and pretty easy to understand. The first one is just prepare for God. As I've already suggested, at the time of Isaiah, the Jews were, they were in danger from Assyria. They were in danger from Babylonia. They were going to end up being carried off into captivity. And in chapter 40, Isaiah is able to lift his eyes and theirs and get beyond that terrible, terrible period in their history. And he's able to express that soon that captivity will be over. His vocabulary in, chapter, in verse 2 is that their sins will have been punished sufficiently, which he says is a double punishment, a double punishment for what they have done. But right now, if we were with them, Right in the midst of all their troubles, God's people are looking for comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. And when you get past those first two verses, which include saying, speak tenderly, at verse 3 we hear, prepare for God to come. I'm sure that some of you, maybe most of you, as I read the scriptures, were hearing the music of Handel's Messiah, and 
a week ago at this hour, I was in the overflow room at Christ Church because I didn't get there early enough to be in the main part to hear that Christmas section. Powerful stuff. A picture of getting ready because God is coming. And the vocabulary is get out and get those roads fixed up. You know, the announcement, what was it, yesterday announced that they're finally going to finish the road from uh, O'Hare out to Elgin. I think it said six years, and I'm thinking, six years? I'll be in my 80s. Come on, let's get that thing going. Let's get those roads fixed up. Well, that was the pattern in those days, too. If there was an eastern monarch that was going to arrive, the advanced people went out and made sure everything was ready for him. And that included, of course, getting the roads fixed up and giving the message, the king is coming. We have to make sure everything is ready before the king arrives. Make it easy for the king to travel. And the picture in verse 3 and verse 4 is there in that desert, get everything straight, get a highway for our God, get the valley raised up, get the mountain down low, get the rough ground level, get the rugged places of plain, get it all ready. And what is the picture saying? Well, you think of that desert road between Babylon and Jerusalem. And Isaiah is saying that God is going to come back to Babylon and get his people and lead them across on that road back to where their home was, back across that terrible territory to Jerusalem. And when they heard that, it must have been difficult to receive it and to accept it and believe it, unless they thought back to the time of Moses, because this had happened once before. God had done that kind of thing back earlier in history. God had brought his people out of Egypt and he took them through that wilderness for 40 years and he brought them into the promised land and he could do it again. But you and I read the passage and we don't think primarily of Moses and we don't think primarily of coming back from Babylon because we know the rest of the story and we know what the New Testament says as the New Testament says, that herald who is announcing that advanced man is John the Baptist. We read about it in the opening words of Mark, and John the Baptist says, get ready, the king is coming. And his message is summarized in the word repent, isn't it? John only needs one word. He's saying that you need to turn. You need to go back in the right way. You need to change your mind. You need to reorient your whole life and your personality toward God. You need to have a sense of sin and sorrow for it. You need to desire to change. You need to make a conscious effort to stop being that way and become this way. All that seems so absent in our culture, in our generation, where sin is no longer taken seriously, and so repentance is no longer taken seriously as well. Probably like I have been doing, you have been hearing 
all of the folks analyzing what happened Friday and why it happened. And 90% of them don't mention the word sin in that process and don't speak of repentance. But when this passage is made full in the Gospels, in the life of John the Baptist, he calls for repentance. And he talks about a judgment to come. And he introduces a water baptism different from anything they'd had before. A water baptism that symbolically points to a cleansing from their old way of life and is a dramatic way of alerting people to their need and of warning them of the coming judgment. And John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but something greater is coming. That that water baptism was a means toward the end that people would change. And John would tell specific groups, this is what it means for you. This is how you are to live. This is how you are to get ready for the king. And here we are 2,000 years later. And personal preparation for the coming of God is still necessary for us as well. Because the gospel message for us includes not only the words we say gospel, the good news, but it also includes repentance, a word we don't use very much. But it says that we humans are held responsible for our actions, so we must change and live for God. There's really a double theme here in the passage, isn't there? There is that theme that God will change you. And that second theme, that you must change. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. And we obtain comfort when we prepare for the coming of the Lord. This is certainly a primary focus of our Advent season. Prepare, be comforted, God is coming. Second thought. Believe God's promise, verses 6 through 8. God has a promise that relates to all this. When you get to verse 6, and he asks, what shall I cry? Well, the answer doesn't seem very promising. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The image of frail human beings, so frail that we don't even live, very long. I'm more and more aware of that for two reasons. One, I'm getting older, but second, one of my part-time jobs is with Noelcrest Funeral Home, where I'm on call for them. We humans are very frail. And so he says, all men are like grass. But then he switches at the end of verse 8, after he says the grass withers and the flowers fall, but... The word of our God stands forever. God is not frail. What God says is not frail. God makes promises. He gives us a word, and that word never changes. It is good forever. A book that I used to have, I think it's long gone now, was titled, All the Promises of the Bible man named Herbert Lockyer wrote it. I probably never read it all the way through because it was 610 pages long. 
as he listed every promise that he could find in the scriptures and tried to reassure us about those thousands of promises. But if I were to take all those promises and say, what's the core one? What is at the root of all those other promises? I would say it's Genesis 17, 7, where God says, I will establish my covenant to be a God to you. Where he says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. The source of comfort in this passage is the thought that the word of our God stands forever, that our God doesn't change, that our God says to us, I will be your God, and you will be my people. I'll give you a couple of illustrations, because that great promise is made specific in many different situations in the Scripture. At the end of this chapter, at, verse, at the very last verse of the chapter, the last two verses, he gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths shall grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. What's the passage have to say to us tonight in the face of tragedy and in the middle of an Advent season? It says, prepare for God. And it says, believe God's promise. And finally, it says, accept God's presence. Look at verses 9 through 11 again. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. What's the imagery here? Well, the imagery, first of all, is of a town crier. That man who used to come through the town at the end of the day shouting out the news of the day. Here is what happened. I saw a modern-day version of this yesterday. It was at Yorktown Mall, and standing out in front of Sports Authority was a young lady shouting or at least speaking loudly enough so that everybody going by could hear her particular message. I saw her a couple of times, and yet it didn't seem the same. It's not like that town crier in that small town shouting out the news of the day so that all could hear. We don't have that. We have Facebook to do that for us now. 
still not quite the same. In this case, this man is standing off in Babylon. He's in captivity, but he's announcing that the captivity is over. We're going home. We're going to return. We're all going back to Jerusalem. And it needs to be announced not only in Babylon, it needs to be announced in Jerusalem and all over Judah as well. It's over. And the message in verse 10, see the sovereign Lord comes with power. The strength of God is coming into our lives. He's going to take us back from captivity. And in the New Testament, it was John the Baptist who was the town crier. And he kept announcing to anyone who would listen, a mightier one than I is coming. The advent of the Messiah is upon us. Well, of course, in that day, they were looking for a political and military Messiah. In that day, meaning in the time of Isaiah, in the time of John the Baptist. <coughs> and they were disappointed. Jesus didn't seem like that. They should not have been disappointed because something better came than that kind of Messiah they were looking for because Jesus came as a Savior, one who puts us right with God for now and for eternity. If we'd been back there in the first century or even back there in the time of Isaiah, from our perspective, there was one advent that we were looking forward to. From our perspective, we know there is both a first and a second public coming of the Christ, and that our salvation will be completed when Jesus returns. Meanwhile, we get comfort from the beautiful picture in this last verse. He tends his flock like a shepherd. The tender, loving care that's made available to us. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Tonight we've been looking at the way it was expressed in the time of Isaiah. We could look at it the way it was expressed in the New Testament times. Or we can look at it the way it was expressed 16, 1700 years after that in words that many of us are familiar with. What is your only comfort in life and death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied all my sins. He's delivered me from all the power of the devil. He so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yes, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready henceforth 
to live unto him. Amen.